This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Chronicles Magazine podcast. I'm here talking with a fan favorite, Paul Gottfried, and we're going to go through a couple of his books. Um, but first, I did solicit some questions uh, from people, and so I have about six good ones. I think that would be um, a great introduction to our conversation. So, Paul, first of all, how are you? I am fine. I told you we uh, we had a bit of a crisis this morning because a hawk um, uh, almost landed on my uh, on my dachshund puppy. My wife was out there, and I think she's still traumatized by the experience. Fortunately, the hawk did not take the dog. But the dog seems traumatized. He's sleeping now under my feet. Uh, and, uh, you know, he probably suffered more, was more traumatized than we were aware of at the time. <clears throat> this is a new puppy, right? Because you had one before. No, he's it's, it's a new one. He's, yeah. uh, he's just four months. Right. And, and his name is? Valdi, like Valdemar. Uh-huh. <laughs> Was that your choice or your wife's choice? Well, no, no. There, there's a famous book called um, Valdi, das war ein lustiges Dackelbuch in German. And it's, you know, a, a jolly book about a dackel or, or a dachshund. It's one of the most famous children's books of all times. And it's been translated to about 40 different languages, published originally in Germany in the 1920s or 1930s. So he's named for that Valdi. looks exactly the same you know, as the dog, dog in the, uh, that, that uh, illustrious book. <clears throat> well, Valdi's fine, and therefore Paul is fine, <laughs> and so we'll have a good conversation. Mm-hmm. All right, Paul, first question that came up, um, give me a couple of your favorite and your least favorite U.S. presidents. Um, let's see, who are the U.S. presidents that I admire most? Um, it would not be Joe Biden. Joe Biden would be somewhere at the bottom of the list. Uh, <laughs> I think he is possibly the most uh, the most contemptible um, and outrageously bad president. Although he is he is not he has not been the most destructive. I mean, unlike Lincoln, he did not blunder into a, into a uh, 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 an absolute disastrous war, or you know, like Woodrow Wilson pushed the country into the European bloodbath, or something like that. But uh, he, he is a man who was almost infinitely contemptible. Um, I would put Obama on that same list. I think he was, he was a horrible president who played the race card, but uh, his, uh, uh, his shameful behavior was covered by the, by the media. Uh, if, I'm, if I have to go to the, the positive side, I profoundly admire George Washington. Uh, he is one of my, one of my favorite presidents. Uh, and he's the, the founder of the country, and a man who turned his back on power and, and, and creating a military dictatorship in this country, because he, you know, he was committed to the constitutional republican form of government that he helped to give the United States. Um, I would in the in the in the modern era, I admire um, Calvin Coolidge. Um, Harding, I think, was not a bad president, although he had you know s- significant personal flaws. Um, the, uh, I, I admire Eisenhower among the presidents of my own lifetime. I think Eisenhower was by far the best. He was highly competent. Uh, he did not overestimate his own abilities, um, and, uh, knew how to delegate power to others who were 
competent in my view. Uh, so I, I admire him for his sense of prudence. In the 19th century, uh, um, I don't really dislike some of those Republican uh, uh, presidents. Uh, once, once you get beyond such an obvious loser as Grant, but Republican presidents who served in the Union Army, uh, they seem to be Rutherford Hayes, uh, others behave decently. Um, the uh, uh, Cleveland, Cleveland uh, I like because it's a pre again a president who understands the limits of his own power, um, and you know does not presume to do more than he should. I, I also like those presidents who sought reconciliation with the South after the Civil War, you know, sort of put the try to put the war behind them, you know, and stress the unity of the country and treat both sides in the war with with dignity. Um, going back into the earlier period of time, I'm thinking of whom uh, would I, there, there are not too many presidents to whom I object strongly <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the early period. Um, I am not a big fan of Jefferson. Uh, I, I don't like the way he treated uh, uh, Federalist judges. Uh, I don't like, he, he was, he was uh, he, the political party that he created, I think was extremely nasty um in, engaged in terrible character assassination although as a president he wasn't he wasn't that bad um i'm trying uh, uh adams is a man of enormous ability but he was not a particularly good president the same is true of hoover and i think of nixon who was a highly intelligent man but not a good president mm -hmm. um uh the the the, the ones i do i do not love woodrow wilson uh, for any number of reasons, is down at the bottom. Although I think he, I think he's a man uh, of much more impressive parts, obviously, than Joe Biden or uh, or Obama. Um, but I, I, I think he was a thoroughly destructive president. I have mixed feelings about Lincoln, which uh, for which some Southern conservatives cannot forgive me. I think he's an enormously talented man. He's a brilliant speaker. He's a man of moral vision, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I think the Civil War was avoidable uh, at the end of the day, and I, I think his uh, decision to send troops and, you know, to raise armies to invade the South was a disastrous decision, um, and we're still living with the effects of it even now. Um, I don't like Franklin Roosevelt or Truman. Uh, I can't think of too many Democratic presidents in the 20th century whom I can even stand. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, Reagan, I sort of give maybe C grades to, I don't think he did very much to change the politics of the country. Uh, and I did wor work in the Department of Education as an advisor. Uh, and he was very careful about not going after the deep state, sort of keeping people in place. Most of his appointments were sort of patronage type appointments. Um, I, I think the, the achievements of a Reagan revolution have been vastly exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Let me give you two names uh, for to comment on. The first is Jimmy Carter, and the second is Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, um, I admire Teddy Roosevelt as a person. <laughs> I think he has very heroic qualities. Uh, I don't particularly like the course on which he set the country. And uh, his belligerence doesn't please me very much either. He tried to push the United States into war, World War I on England's side in 1914, uh, something which I, I think would have been, I think was a mistake then, and it was a mistake in 1917. Um, 
the uh, his his faith in the administrative state, I think, is something that has turned out very badly. Um, but uh, he has personal quality, a certain kind of manliness, virility, somebody who overcomes uh, uh, all kinds of uh, unhappy experiences in life, um, and and you know who, sh who shows a, a kind of resolve that I uh, uh, and and doggedness that I can admire. I admire him as a person. Uh, Jimmy Carter, I can't think of anything that I admire. Um, <laughs> I don't really hate the man. I just think he was a disastrous president. He also exemplifies a kind of moral righteousness that I think is peculiarly Anglo-American, you know, that, uh, and German now, a kind of Germanic quality in which, you know, uh, you, you stand for God on earth, whatever cause you stand for, you're a righteous person and whoever disagrees with you is, is evil. And I think you find that mentality in a very extreme form in Jimmy Carter. The other thing I find interesting about him is he starts out as a devout Baptist, remember, Southern Baptist, right? Um, and somebody who believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. Now he's, he has, in the last years, he has supported every form of wokeness, transgender, gay, right? And that is because he is committed to the left. Whatever the left does, he does. Although at one point he was, he was a devout Christian who also, by the way, was critical of people in his government who were having affairs because he was against, you know, against God's commandment. Um, and I, I, th I think as a person who has been morally corrupted by his association with the woke left, which he has done absolutely nothing to resist. Perfect. Let's move to Europe real quick. Um, just, just generally speaking, over the last several hundred years, you can go back further. Are there any European statesmen that you um, admire? Many. <laughs> well, we because because last week, last time you were on, we talked about thinkers. But what about statesmen? Can you just name a few that stand out? Well, I don't. Know, I admire Cardinal Richelieu enormously. Who sort of builds up the French state. He creates modern France. Um, I admire Metternich. Uh, you know, as a great statesman who creates a kind of European order after the chaos of the French Revolution. As everyone knows, I'm a great fan of Bismarck, whom I think was a brilliant statesman. Um, you know, and, and of course, is 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 despised in modern Germany, which for which he should no way be blamed. I mean, in my view, it's an utterly degenerate society. He did nothing to create, or I suppose he tried to create an empire, which has turned into this after several wars. But um, uh, he would be near the top of my list of, of great statesmen. In the 20th century, I admire uh, sort of a kind of mixed bag. I admire um, de Gaulle. Uh, who was able to, you might, one might say, sort of wrest some kind of victory from the defeat and humiliation of his country in the Second World War. Um, and, you know, fights for the honor of France, even while it's being occupied by Nazi Germany. Uh, and, then, and then sort of emerges as France's leader afterwards and, you know, uh, uh, is able to uh, take almost a kind of Napoleonic authoritarian power within a democratic structure. Um, and uh, does hold the country together, does deal effectively with some of the ideological problems. Uh, he um, uh, is condemned by French right-wing nationalists for abandoning Algeria, which he did together with the, with the Algerians who supported France. I don't think that was his, uh, his happiest hour, his most admirable hour, but he also opposed letting 
Muslims into France, except for those who had fought on the side of France in Algeria. Um, and, you know, I think he was a wise statesman. I am not a great Winston Churchill admirer, as people know. Uh, I think he played an unfortunate role in the events leading to World War I. Uh, he was a war hawk. Um, and uh, although he was right to oppose the Nazis, uh, he took a kind of uh, implacable position against Germany in the war, which I think cost a great deal. I think the war probably could have been ended uh, by dealing with the German resistance. There was a resistance. <clears throat> um, the unconditional surrender, the concessions made to Soviet Soviet Russia, the uh, what really turns into the bomb, uh, terror bombing of Central Europe, not only Germany, are all things that I think he bears some responsibility for. Um, having said that, I do think he is in some ways a man of enormous talent and ability. And I think, you know, one has to, I mean, in, in an age of uh, Macron, and I don't even know who the jerk is, who's prime minister of England, and uh, Germany, Schultz is like beneath contempt, uh, and Baerbach, who was the other one that, uh, um, Baerbach, who's the, uh, the adolescent foreign minister, woke foreign minister, you look at the, and, and of course, Biden and Blinken in this country who are disgraced, they're shameful. Uh, they're shamefully incompetent and shamefully corrupt and woke. Uh, I mean, Churchill is a man of superior ability. I, I think at some point, you know, because people on the right have to recognize that those with whom they may disagree were nonetheless great people, whether it's Churchill or Lincoln, you know, people you disagree, even Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, you know, the, I can see qualities of greatness, even in people who I think did disastrous things. Mm -hmm. um, and but now we're looking at pygmies. We're looking at woke pygmies who are running which are pretending to run Europe. Um, so, you know, yeah, yes. And whom do you admire more, Lincoln or Biden? The answer is obviously Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Let me um, what, So you, I mean, Churchill, you're you know hesitant on. But what about like Chamberlain? What do you think about him? I, I, th I think he is an unfairly maligned individual. Um, you know, he did what he thought was necessary in, in 1938 because England was not prepared to go to war against Nazi Germany. They weren't. Mm. Um, later on, with the invasion of Poland, he does declare war on Nazi Germany. Um, although I think to some extent the Poles were responsible for creating a situation that Hitler could use, you know, to, to invade Poland. He was also dying of cancer at the time, even that he was a sick man. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think he was, he was, he really was an honorable person. He was an honorable English statesman. What about your thoughts on Franco and Salazar? Yeah, uh, Salazar is a thoroughly admirable individual who surrounds sort of a caretaker government in Portugal, a kind of very, uh, benevolent authoritarian government. Uh, you know, I have a certain respect for, for Salazar. Um, Franco uh, is in many ways heroic. He's also a good commander. I think the, the civil war is forced on him. Uh, I agree with Stanley Payne and, and others who have written, uh, Al Matz, others who have written uh, uh, on the war um, and, uh, you know, understood, you know, how absolutely reckless and destructive the so-called Republican government was. Uh, and the fact that it had tried to overthrow even its own Republic, the left that tried, which was in the government, tried to overthrow the Republic. Uh, most uh, uh, 
most shamelessly in October of 1934 with the, the uprising in Asturias of miners and others, which was being supported by the Socialist Party, which was then in the government. Um, by, the, by the time that Franco gets involved um, in, the, in, in the, the uprising of July 1936, I think, was, I think he's doing something that was long overdue. The fact that he's able to win the war is remarkable given all the advantages the Republican side have at the beginning of the war. I mean, the, uh, the uprising of the generals is uh, something that, you know, was doomed to fail. Just about everyone, Churchill, Roosevelt, others, didn't think it was any way that the, the nationalists could win. What I do hold against Franco is that, and it's you know something that Stanley Payne point, points out in the biog his biography, is he's utterly vindictive after he wins. I mean, he kills tens of thousands of people on the other, you know, uh, a leftist on the other side who had taken up arms and so forth. So he deals very ruthlessly with his enemies. He also spends a number of years trying to play off the the allies against the Axis during the Second World War. Um, and trying to get hold of Gibraltar and, and spread Spanish holdings in Morocco. These are all things that he should not have bothered to do. He should have tried to rebuild his country. Uh, and some of his early economic policies are disastrous. Um, from the 1950s on is basically, is, you know, it's a, it's a caretaker government that he runs and he becomes sort of like Salazar, except he works uh, more strenuously to modernize his country. And by the 1970s, you know, in his death and so forth, Spain is really a first world country, uh, in large part owing to Franco's policies. So, uh, you know, he, he has a very, uh, very long, variegated career. Um, and I think except for his behavior at, in 1939, then into the war years, uh, when he uh, when he when he behaves much more brutally than he has to and does very little to improve the country economically, I would probably give him high grades uh, as a Spanish leader. Last 20th century question here. Um, Chronicles had a an issue on the atomic dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan. Um, and I think I was the only one that took the um, you know the dissenting opinion against the dropping of the bombs. What's your opinion on this? Who was in favor of the dropping of the bomb? You said you took a dissenting opinion. The other three contributors to the Chronicles issue. What's your opinion of the bombs? Uh, I think that, I think it was much more than was probably necessary to end the war. Um, I mean, even if they had blockaded the island of Japan, they would have ended it. <clears throat> um, it does end it. It, end, it ends more quickly. But there was absolutely no military reason, by the way, to bomb Nagasaki, <laughs> one bomb <laughs> mm -hmm. that was more than enough. And I've even heard this from people who, you know, took a, 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 a position in favor of, of use, the use of the atomic bomb. Um, I, I think I, my view is that war should be, you know, ends to war should be negotiated. And I think that was probably true, true about the Second World War, as, as well as other wars. Um, I'm entirely opposed, by the way, to war trials by the, the winning side at the expense to talking about Anglo-Saxon moral hypocrisy mm -hmm. and righteousness, obnoxious righteousness, that probably takes the cake. <laughs> right. Let's okay, let's shift to, to um your academic work now. Let's shift to theory. Um I want to talk about two books. Um they're related <laughs> to each other. 
The first one is after liberalism. So we'll mm -hmm. start with that. So your major thesis in after liberalism is well, first of all, you know, you you discuss at length the difficulty of defining liberalism. Mm -hmm. You know, what does it even mean? And and how would you, could you use liberalism to describe the 20th century administrative state? So why don't you start with that? What's what's the problem with describing us as a liberal nation? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the problems is there is no one liberalism. There are many, many liberalisms. Right, and then there there is a type of liberalism that becomes characteristic of Western societies like England, the United States, France, um, more progressive regions of Germany, Scandinavia, <clears throat> Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire, certainly after 1867, um, and you know th this is one kind of liberalism, and to me it is uh, if I have to pick you know, which is the model liberalism, uh, that is model liberalism. It is, it is what was meant by liberalism for a pretty long period of time. And it included, it, it, somebody described it as the idea of the bourgeoisie, which is true. You know, it's, it's a bourgeois society that incorporates aristocratic and monarchical elements. It's sort of what England was in the Victorian era, <clears throat> whether we're looking at Disraeli or Gladstone or Salisbury or <clears throat> Palmerston. Um, it also is the government of France um, in the, and even the government of Louis Napoleon to some extent. <clears throat> um, it is a, a constitutional government uh, that uh, generally, generally practices religious freedom. There are some restraints on this, uh, favor academic freedom um, with some restraints and open press. <clears throat> um, and some kind of popular representation in government. The popular representation typically uh, is restricted to people, what, what you call in France, la classe capacitaire, the people who are capable of doing this. That is people with some property uh, who pay a certain amount of taxes to the government and so forth. And are, you know, are, 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 are not doing anything criminal as far as we can determine. Um, there are, of course, moral laws that are always in place in liberal societies against LGBT, for instance. Uh, gender distinctions are, of course, always made in liberal societies uh, because they're traditional bourgeois societies. Um, they tend to be anti-clerical in Catholic countries, right? but much less so in Protestant countries. So, you know, you could have somebody who, like Gladstone, who's a devout Protestant Christian and also liberal. You know, um, you'd be less likely to find that, let's say, in Italy, right, or uh, in Austria, where liberals tend to be anti-clerical. Um, so, I, what I say is, there is a sort of a there is liberalism. There's a, there's a kind of uh, normative liberalism to which I'm pointing. Then you have all the different uh, uh, what should we say claimants to the term liberal. Uh, uh, most recently, woke America, right? The wokeness, uh, LGBT, uh, and even earlier, welfare state, uh, social democrats like uh, John Dewey claimed to be liberal. There's an old liberalism. Now he has a new liberalism, which I, I discussed in my book. Well, my problem with this is the term is not infinitely elastic, <laughs> you know, and at a certain point, you're dealing with something that is not liberal. And uh, the term liberal democratic to me usually refers to a post-liberal society, post-liberal and usually post-democratic. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because it refer it, it is the way the managerial, the Western managerial administrative state describes itself, liberal democratic. Mm -hmm. That's the term by which it describes itself. And as I argue by older standards, and it's neither liberal nor democratic, uh, as a matter of fact, it's an authoritarian form of government, uh, as you have in Germany or England or uh, Canada today, they're authoritarian governments which justify themselves by holding periodic electoral rituals or ritualistic elections. And since the media controls discourse, their laws against hate speech are told what you can say, needless to say, the people in power always win. So this, this, this is democracy. So if you notice the title of my book is Mass Democracy in the Administrative State, because this is the, the latest stage or the newest stage um, of, of liberalism, right? Uh, you, I, and uh, one of the things I argue is that once you go from a limited franchise in the 19th century to something like uh, universal male franchise, uh, you don't get chaos. You don't get the chaos of the French Revolution. What you get is an administrative state that governs on behalf of the people on the basis of what it claims are scientific principles of government. Of course, mm -hmm. they're not scientific at all, but they claim they're science, right? You want like you know, uh, demonology claimed to be a science once. So we have this, the science of government that these people, you know, take courses at state colleges. So they, they can work for the government. Uh, and it's mass democracy because it is not national democracy, right? It, it is not democracy which uh, exists within a nation or people who are, have, share the same history, genetics. All that. No, it is except the whole world, right? Anyone can come in, and if you say you believe, I don't know, in democracy or human rights or something, they'll then let you become a citizen. And you don't really govern the country anyhow. You have no power, right? You are just allowed to cast the vote for the administrative class, which, which, which remain in, and for the media. The media, as I call the priesthood um, of the administrative state. So uh, this too describes itself as liberalism, but I I, I, th I think that um, CJ is right that the, the argument I make about liberalism, you know, an unbounded term, because, you know, in my early chapters, because it can mean anything that the people in power tell you is liberalism. And, you know, if the media can convince enough and the universities can convince enough people, then uh, that definition becomes the authoritative one until they move on to something else. So that the United States stands for liberal principles, therefore we must have gay marriage in Ukraine or something like that. Uh, now this this would make no sense in terms of you know Lord Palmerston or Disraeli or uh, any of these other people who had been liberals in the 19th century, uh, which which is in fact my argument that this. Uh, the, the term has lost any specificity of meaning, like conservatism, like democracy, like much of our political vocabulary. <clears throat> We're going to get to the, you know, the woke land and, and all of that stuff, the post 60s right. revolution and the therapeutic state. We'll get to that in a minute. But right. back in the early 20th century, with the rise of the administrative state and the managerial revolution, would you consider that an American phenomenon or was it sourced in <clears throat> Europe? Where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, what? One of the arguments that I that I make, particularly in the third the third part of that trilogy um, on the post Marxist left, is that you have similar developments going on simultaneously in all Western countries, right? 
uh, in the United States, England, Scandinavia, to some extent in Germany, France comes a bit later. <clears throat> um, and what you have is the development of, of a large bureaucracy which creates social policy. And then that comes together that with, with uh, a universal franchise, everybody votes. Now guess what they're gonna vote for? More social programs <clears throat> so that democracy becomes identified with and uh, it fuses with this, this public administration. And this happens in most Western countries at about the same time. I, I was involved in this, this debate with some people from the, uh, uh, the Claremont Institute <clears throat> who insisted that the reason that Anglo-American or American thinkers uh, favor a large welfare state is that they've given up believing in natural right and have, and have been influenced by Hegel. And my argument is you don't have to be influenced by Hegel, any number of English and American people calling for a large administrative state at the same time. Uh, in fact, this develops in the United States and, and in England, you know, in the early 20th century, quite independently of, uh, of German, German thought. There, there were some of these people who favored like Bosenkett, Green, others are gonna be uh, their own sort of version of Hegelianism. But this, this, um, this uh, the theory of the administrative state and Woodrow Wilson and others has indigenous roots. And it seems, it seems to uh, come in Scandinavia, England, the United States, and other countries, Western countries around the same time. <clears throat> so the managerial revolution produced an entirely new system in the West and in the United States mm -hmm. in particular. It kind of gave us the expert class and the technocrats and the, right. the administration of freedoms, you know, and all the things that we claim as rights today are administered. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're wisely uh, integrated, you know, in a way that the experts see fit. Um, that morphs into... Uh, because at that point, you wouldn't call that uh, they had no interest in a multicultural society that comes later. Mm -hmm. right? right. So talk about that connection uh, before. You know, so where did the multicultural aspects come in? Well, what, what, what I argue is the administrative state can go in a number of directions once it's once it develops in Western countries. Uh, and I, I think in the manager revolution, um, Burnham is right to point out that there are these different paths that managerialism can take depending on the society and its culture. <clears throat> so you have fascist managerialism, you have Catholic corporatist manager, which in some ways looks like fascist managerialism. Then you have various leftist managerialism, you have uh, communist managerialism, and then you have what for want of a better word I call social democracy. You know, like Welfare, it's basically, it's, it's, it's social democracy with varying degrees of state nationalization or state control. <clears throat> and th this is the winning model because it's taken over by the United States, by England, and by other countries that emerge as victorious in the two world wars, mm -hmm. right? So their, their managerialism is going to do it. And of Let course, me... once the United States, the United States is the premier power once it takes over a certain managerial model uh, all of our vassal states will, you know, uh, have that model reinforced for them. I mean, th th this becomes the socially, politically, morally acceptable model of government. So, so for for Burnham and for yourself, the managerial revolution was something that took the entire world capture. And Stalin had a certain rendition right. of it. A certain, he was a certain type of this revolution, and the United States was a different type of the same revolution. That's right. I mean, you know, if you look at Hitler's Germany. Um, and, you know, the, uh, 
There's a very good work on this by Reinhard Zittelmann, who's a friend of mine, uh, the one book called Hitler de Revolutionnel, but there's, there's several different books he wrote showing to what extent um, Hitler's Germany creates a large welfare state, looking very much like a Western welfare, like the American model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's heavily influenced by, the, by, by what's going on in the United States. It sort of takes over the same model, um, <clears throat> although the ideology is different. So the, the question is, why does the American model of managerial government become fused at a certain time with, with multiculturalism and so forth? So I, I think a lot of this goes back to the war against fascism, which is the dominant struggle in the Western democracies. It's not against communism. Communism mm-hmm. is simply seen as another form of fascism, red fascism or some. But fascism is seen as the ultimate anti-democratic government because it's based on inequality, uh, certainly in the German model, racialism, <clears throat> less so in the Spanish or French or Italian model. Um, and it is something that, you know, the whole country has to mobilize itself to fight, as I point to my book, Clean After Liberalism. And one might say the, the, the fight against communism is an interlude, because once that's over, we go back to fighting fascism, because I point to my book on anti-fascism. And every Western country is now mobilized against fascism. Um, and I, I think there, there's some very good reasons for that. What, one is that the democratic welfare state stresses equality and universalism. Its values are leftist values, right? It, it, it is not, you know, the, the encyclical of Pope so-and-so. It is left, it is standard leftist values, uh, you know, universalism, human rights, that kind of stuff. So fascism seems to be the, the polar opposite. And, uh, you know, using Carl Schmidt about, you know, the, the enemy defines your friends. Uh, in this case, one might say the struggle against fascism becomes determinative for the Western welfare state. Mm-hmm. So the, the, mo- the move into, and then, and then there are other things, of course, that come along, like the, the war against colonialism on the left. <clears throat> so once these, these anti-colonial people take power, you know, in governments, uh, then, you know, you, they not only oppose, they are not only oppose colonialism abroad, but as an act of contrition or enrichment, you must bring their populations into your country, which is what we do, right? Mm-hmm. So in Germany, it's not enough, you know, to talk about the, the Holocaust, we can't discover bad people. You must also allow the, po- you must encourage the population of Africa as, as Olaf Scholz does to come, he was in Kenya recently, to come to Germany to live. We want, we want, you have to enrich us as people. So uh, now I I mentioned the Germans because they're a particularly pathological example of what I'm describing. Mm -hmm. But then they were re-educated by the Americans after World War II, you know. So they become anti-fascist Nazis. Um, But, you know, but I think this generally is where the administrative state has gone. And um, at least in the way it, it has become fused with this struggle against inequality and particularity mm-hmm. right so we have mastered them and the 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 next move that we've seen is in the direction of wokeness uh in which you not only fight the victims of colonialism and racism but all of these people who unfairly were considered to be considered sexual perverts mm-hmm. you know, they, they too were victims of a discriminatory <clears throat> civilization, which the modern welfare state and modern public administration is now 
ridding us of, you know, as, as we move into this new, new era of tolerance. <clears throat> so the managerial revolution, the administrative state was a prerequisite for what yes. you call the therapeutic state. So right. what is the therapeutic state and where did you get that phrase? <clears throat> well, the, the, the phrase had been floating around. Um, I think one, one of the sources from which I took it, if I, if I may admit, is uh, cultural Marxism, was cultural Marxism, mm -hmm. <laughs> which has influenced me to some extent. Uh, and uh, I took some of it from, from Marcuse, but then, then also the, the writings on the therapeutic state uh, by, uh, by Lash, whom I knew had some influence on me. <clears throat> and, um, you know, at a certain point, it became undeniable that, that you know the struggle against prejudice, the struggle against fascism, um, had sort of taken on a pseudo uh, psychological aspect, you know. And uh, of course, in its, in its more recent form, um, anyone who disagrees with you or what the media or the state tell you um, must be psychologically demented. Must be demented. <clears throat> um, uh, now, this, of course, conflicts with, with another notion that I think has become just as prevalent, that if you disagree with us, you're evil. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, there's a, a contradiction here. I mean, if I'm sick, you know, if the reason I think that there are genders is that I'm sick, um, why would this uh, mean that I'm an evil person? I'm just sick. Right. I mean, I have to be rehabilitated or <laughs> retrained by the state. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, I think I think there is a but I think we have moved from a therapeutic state in which we treat those who disagree as mentally disabled or handicapped, which was I think the the kind of thing the the Soviet Union used to do. Right. So so what you're saying is now it's much more religious. Oh yeah, it's a religious thing, right? It's, right. It's, it's it's moved from pseudo psychology to pseudo religion. Right, because they're 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 operating in categories of good and evil now. Right. 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 And you talk about this in your book, Multiculturalism and the Politics of Guilt. I mean, last our last conversation, you know, we had good things to say about Protestant political theology, but you actually source a lot of what's happening in the on the American scene to the secularization of Puritanism and right. liberal Protestantism. So right. connect those dots for us. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I've, I that book became very popular among um Catholic integralist and right-wing Catholics who hate the Reformation. Um, I pointed out that I have nothing against the Reformation. I have a profound admiration for, for the Puritans and Calvinists. It's when they go bad, that's the problem. Right. Uh, I mean, they make a total mess. And uh, having worked at a, uh, a Protestant college for many years that became woke, um, I could see the stages by which these people became corrupted. That in some way was an inspiration for my book. and. Uh, you have, you know, the, the idea of the elect is definitely present in the in the woke left, right? I mean, the people who govern us. Hillary Clinton is is one of the elect. I mean, was she, a, she I think she started out as a Methodist and became a you know woke a woke elect person. But 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 there there is, um, you know, the fingerprints prints of a degenerate Protestantism in all, in all of this. Um, what um, uh, what my friend James Kurd, who is a political thinker and also a Calvinist theologian, says, you know, is the uh, the, the 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 final deformation of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. you can see it, you can see it happening. Uh, but the uh, the idea of total sin, total depravity, 
you know, which is assigned to white people, except even those white people who admit to the sins of racism, sexism, homophobia, um, they, even if they admit to this, they, they still suffer from total depravity being white heterosexuals, right? But the fact that they admit to this sin shows that they're probably among the elect, you know, mm -hmm. they can now go forth and uh, uh, try to convert others, maybe have to burn some people at the stake, but, you know, <laughs> eventually, eventually you, the, every, everything will be fine. We'll be living in a kind of uh, interracial, uh, uh, polysexual, polymorphic sexual society so, in, in which the people with the weirdest lifestyles will, will be given the, you know, the most political honor. Right. You know, that's one of the things that I've, I've talked to you about before, you know, actually is just the, the aspect of, you know, we're not all equal individuals under these like tyranny of the state. Right, right. That's that's maybe what like certain, um, you know, thinkers and observers in the 20th century thought was happening. But as it turns out, there is a new hierarchy being established um, and, and it's really religious in its nature. But there are um, people that are friendly to the regime and there are people that, um, you know, don't belong in polite society under the new hierarchy. Yeah. The other thing I find is the only ones who really believe in these doctrines are white Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say, I've been among Blacks, Jews, people from India. Most of them don't believe this crap. <laughs> they, they view themselves as, uh, as minorities, uh, vulnerable minorities living in a white Christian society. And the majority whom they imagine are all united, you know, which hasn't been the case for probably several hundred years. They imagine they're all united. They're all going to turn against them. You know, so you'll have pogroms and lynchings and everything. So, <clears throat> I mean, these people have sort of an exaggerated sense uh, of facing an enemy that doesn't even exist. But uh, they don't, you know, they, they rely to the left because the left they see as neutralizing what would otherwise be a Christian theocracy, a white Christian theocracy. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I've seen this again, or I've heard this again and again from members of minority groups. But the only group that really believes this stuff are white Christians. And I would say, having taught at a uh, Protestant college, everybody believe, really believes that stuff. And I don't know which is worse. I mean, cynically using it, you know, to protect your own minority group or actually believing this stuff. I, mean, mm -hmm. I don't know which shows, uh, you know, it's, it's something which is more reprehensible. <laughs> Do you do you think the the secularization of like Puritan or or liberal Protestant themes is the reason why white evangelicals are really eating this up? Yeah, no, I I think evangelicals buy into this. I think many just buy into it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> like uh, the question I keep asking them is, why do you even why do you feel guilty about racism? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are many other things you should feel guilty about, like uh, I don't know. Uh, cheating on your wife or something like that, being a homosexual. And there are many things, you know, you really should feel guilty about. Why, and, 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 you know, how are you? Well, I, I think that blacks are different from whites. Well, they are. I mean, so what? Um, and I, I like whites. I'd rather be around whites. Well, every group among its own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> why is that? Why is that? That's something. But for them, that for some reason, that's sinful. Or why, why is it sinful that somebody in this country owned slaves, I don't know, 200 years ago, you know, when slavery existed all over the world, you know, right. And in, in a much more vicious form in Africa, by the way, when it was Africans sold the slave and the ones in America were actually treated much better than they were anywhere else. 
Um, and why do you feel guilty about this? And there is something really, uh, if, at least in my mind, lunatic about this behavior. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> What's remarkable is the extent to which, you know, England and Germany and um, France, or just all the Western European countries have adopted right. this Americanized approach to the politics of guilt. Right. Where no, do you I think, think you're right? Yeah. So do you think this is kind of an American export? Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's an American export that seems to do best in Germanic Protestant countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't just show what, what used to be Germanic Protestant countries. Right. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, look at Canada, the United States, um, England, Australia. Germany is, of course, the worst, followed by Sweden. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, most of the Norway, all these Germanic countries, Denmark is maybe a little bit better. Now, now, Spain may be an outlier uh, because you have a really crazy woke government there. Uh, but in some ways, it's sort of retribution for the nationalist victory in the Civil War. I mean, still, mm -hmm. But of course, they're different from the people who under who the, from the left in the Civil War because they're woke leftists. They're not they're not Marxist or anarchist. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, th I think the. Uh, the, the, this weird behavior that we're seeing is very much characteristic of Germanic countries, heavily influenced by the United States, um, and uh, it becomes less and less prevalent the farther east you go. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you know, it's not as bad in places like Italy. Do you think? Do you think there's any religious aspect to why you know Italy Italy hasn't been affected as bad as Germany? Well, I, I, I don't know. You, you know, as I argue in my book on post-Marxism, Catholic countries have been taken by this stuff. That, you know, they've been overwhelmed in Germany, the Catholics, by this. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that Mediterranean Latin societies, uh, if we exclude Spain, which is an exception right now, and they, they sort of go mm -hmm. back and forth. But I think Latin societies just don't believe this. There's strong gender roles. There's a sense of the family going back to the ancient Romans. Uh, they're just like uh, Greeks are less susceptible. Uh, Hungary, uh, Hungary is certainly not, right? Slavic peoples less so too. Right. Um, I, I, I think it is strongest in Germanic Protestant countries. Mm -hmm. uh, Austrians seem to be, they're affected, but less so than, than Northern Germans. Right. <laughs> so, you know, on, on these cultural issues, it seems like, you know, even the worst excesses of like the Communist Party and Stalin's regime, mm -hmm. none of them would have participated in any of these themes. No, these, no, this... well, there's, there's a good reason for it, because the, the communists were conservatives on moral social issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, was, it was the areas that were influenced by the United States that became more radicalized. Right. Particularly those who shared a religious, cultural you know, uh, inheritance with the Americans, the mm -hmm. countries who are most like the, like Canada. Canada is the most extreme after Germany, probably, uh, because they, I think they're most heavily influenced by us. I mean, the notion that Canada is really, you know, like medieval England or it's English or medieval, this is nonsense. I mean, they're, they're, they're nothing but the, the United States on the other side of the border, you know, but even more so. Um, and at least since the 1930s, Canada has been heavily influenced by the, it's, it's almost, you know, like a colony of ours. So, although they have, you know, they had monarchs on their stamps or something, but uh, the more like the United States countries are, the more woke they, uh, they, they become. Right. So where do you think this is going? You, you think this is going to continue on, or do you think there's kind of a, you know, a, a brick wall to the trajectory here? Well, 
I think that if this, if and when this changes in the United States, it will change everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the case for the same reason that Marx believed <clears throat> that if a socialist revolution occurs in England, Germany, or the United States, it would occur everywhere <laughs> because th- those are the dominant powers, cultural, economic powers. And I think what happens here will, if, <clears throat> I mean, if if the if you notice Trump revolution, even though it was an aborted revolution led by a clown. But the same thing I show in my book on anti-fascism goes on in Europe. <laughs> you have Trump-like figures everywhere. Now, if, if Trump had proved to be something more, probably more like Franco or something like, if he were more power, or De Gaulle, if he were a more powerful leader who actually was able to change society and had, you know, and was dedicated to this, not to himself, but was dedicated to this transformation into the restoration of a traditional American society, this would have international ramifications. I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean that that covers after liberalism and, and multiculturalism and the politics of guilt. And then your third book would be um, the strange death of Marxism. Mm-hmm. Um, Marxism has kind of expired as the animating, uh, you know, uh, right. you know, feature of of the left. Uh, the new left uh, doesn't think in terms of economic categories, but really hones in on these cultural aspects, um, and that's and that's the new that's the new left. That's the left that operates and is in power today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conservative movement is much more liberal in in where it wants to how it wants to address these problems. It's not mm-hmm. willing to confront them politically, but really just doesn't really have a political solution, but wants um, sort of this compromise with a movement that's not willing to compromise. Um, so what do you have to say about about that? I mean, the conservative movement has really doubled down on its own weaknesses and neutralities. Well, I mean, you know, my argument on this, that the conservative move, we have to uh, uh, we have to cancel and replace the conservative movement. You need a real right in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that right uh, has to be populist. Now, I'm not saying that every society in, you know, in the world that's reacting to the woke left in the managerial state um, has to be populist. Uh, it could be a monarch. It could be an authoritarian right-wing leader. But I think in the United States, um, sort of given uh, given the political divisions that exist, <clears throat> and given the fact that our that at least the white working class, maybe to some extent the Hispanic working class, are the least corrupted mm-hmm. um, by the by the uh, the woke left, and they're called deplorables. That it has to be sort of a kind of populist democratic revolt here. And um, people, by the way, criticize me on the grounds that I'm not consistent, that, you know, I have nice things to say about people like Joseph Demest, which I do. But, you know, they're were, they were addressing a different historical situation at a different time. Mm-hmm. And I, as everyone knows, in a, you know, a relentless historicist, you know, and we're living in a different age and we have to do something else. And we're living in a different society from... <clears throat> You know, from medieval England or England, even the time of Queen Victoria, or Germany under the Kaiser, or something like. So, so we have to be able to create a counter-revolutionary movement from the bottom up. <laughs> you know, and it, it it has to it has to go through the working class, the working class, uh, and those who have been least influenced by the cultural elites in this country. 
one of the things I think that sets you and the paleo conservatives apart from like mainstream conservatism, and, and this is the aspect of conservatism as a movement that has they've been absolutely the worst on, is just the fact that there's particular situations, particular uh, tools that we have, and not there's not this like universe. We can't just appeal to this like constant universal category to address these issues. Everything is unique. Every historical situation is contextual, and the conservative movement just has no way of uh, you know grappling with 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 realism, with political realism. Um, they're universalists through and through, and therefore they can pretend like they can talk about 18th century themes in order to address you know a revolutionary left that has no interest in conversation. Well, I I disagree with you a little bit there. I I think these people are not being unrealistic. I mean, they're very much concerned about their own professional advancement you know they're very they're much better than we are in getting money from corporate capitalists <laughs> we have hardly any <laughs> so i mean you know they're, they're, they play it safe uh they have gatekeepers to keep people like us out of their movement because they they understand we don't think the same way <clears throat> and <clears throat> you know we might take a harsher line on republican transgender than they do <laughs> uh, or you know we don't praise martin luther king sufficiently or something like that um, but, you know, they're, they're very, very good at feathering their own nest. Uh, they're not going to make any difference in terms of the balance of power in the United States. <clears throat> My last question, what do you think about Fox benching Tucker Carlson? I think it was inevitable. You know, the, 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 he obviously offended their donor base. Mm -hmm. And he was being attacked. I remember being attacked by the Anti-Defamation League for anti-Semitism. I see no evidence of anti-Semitism, but for the Anti-Defamation League, anybody who's right of center is a potential anti-Semite, since anti-Semitism is defined as being conservative, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were just like too many people coming at him at the same time. And uh, they, uh, I, I think Fox News knew that it would take a hit. And it's taken an enormous hit, but I'm afraid that Brian Kilmeade uh, Kaylin McEnany, what's her name? Lawrence Jones, these people are really not good substitutes for, uh, for Tucker Carlson, but they're not going to offend their donor base. And I think this is what's very important. And the only people who get into the club are the ones who are allowed to come in because they don't offend the donor base. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I was asked at this, this talk I gave it in York, Pennsylvania a few days ago, by somebody who worked for, I think it was ISI, why they don't, they won't discuss why they don't like me. And I said, you know, they uh, basically tossed me out um, or removed me from their magazine. I said, the reason is I obviously was offensive, offended their donor base by saying certain things. And I can understand that. You mm -hmm. know, I understand that these people are running large operations, are, uh, whether it's Heritage, ISI, uh, uh, AI, they have, and they also have very good relations with Fox and with the media, and they write for the Washington Post and all these other things, some of these foundations. <clears throat> they do not want to stick, allow people to have a voice there who might offend those who are, you know, corporate capitalists who are giving them a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that that is the reason that certain people disappear. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the same as Tucker Carlson. He obviously has... Uh, you know, a, a fan base that's about uh, a trillion times larger than mine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, getting rid of people who um, are, are going to uh, financially damage your operation 
and also bring down, you know, to the wrath of the establishment, which you don't want having coming down at you too often. I mean, these are understandable consider <clears throat> considerations. There's some things that the media, really the, the, the leftist media don't care about. Or the, do they really care if, uh, you know, Republicans criticize the size of the Democratic budget, right? I mean, would they care? <laughs> or <clears throat> I, 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 uh, uh, I like when they, uh, when, when the Republicans criticize the Democrats because the Democrats don't do enough about black crime or a crime which would victimize as blacks. Well, the problem there is all these blacks are voting for the Democrats. They don't care. <laughs> not gonna, but by saying that you, you show how, how caring and sharing you are, right? Because you're saying, uh, I'm sensitive. I can't stand looking at this because this is ra This is terrible. Well, you're not going to lose, you know, you're not going to lose donors for saying that. <clears throat> but I mean, so, some of the, I, I think if you say that the CIA may have been complicit in the assassination of, uh, of JFK, <laughs> you're going to have problems, right? <clears throat> or if you take on the Anti-Defamation League, you may have problems. Um, but uh, they know exactly where to draw the line. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they usually, they usually, and they, of course, I, they also pretend that you know that they are um, they're doing their job because somebody at CNN criticizes Sean Hannity. Mm -hmm. I suspect Sean Hannity is giving them money to criticize. You know, <laughs> this is good for his career, right? That <laughs> they even notice him. Uh, so you know, in, in, in the the conservative movement is is it's not it's not going to move the the dial or <clears throat> anything like that. It's not going to make any difference. By the way, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, like just a classic Eastern establishment liberal like RFK Jr. is now being tagged as a right wing extremist. Um, and it's just it just really revealing how how far politics has gone over the last 70 years or so. The idea that that RFK Jr. is on the right is is amusing to me. Uh, have you been have you been reading some of his statements? Because I have. And he is to the right of most of the people in either party. Because they're all on the left, that's why. Right, exactly. Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul, it's been a good conversation and I, I we were we wanted to talk about historicism um, and we're gonna do that uh, soon, but thank you for entertaining our thoughts for today. Okay, thank you.